You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hello, everyone. I'm Dave Bittner. In this CyberWire special edition, my conversation with Andy Greenberg, senior writer at Wired and author of the new book, Sandworm, a new era of cyber war and the hunt for the Kremlin's most dangerous hackers. It's a thrilling investigation of the Olympic destroyer malware and an accounting of the new era in which we find ourselves, where nation states can target their adversaries' critical infrastructure and the unintended consequences that can follow. The story of Sandworm begins really in the fall of 2014 when iSight Partners, this little security company that would later be acquired by FireEye, spotted first a zero day that was being used in the wild by some hackers and their Ukrainian office sent it to them. And they quickly tied the zero day to a lure document that was part of a campaign that as they sort of sketched the full campaign, they could see it was targeting Eastern Europe and NATO. It appeared at first to be this kind of pretty wide-reaching espionage campaign. As they looked closer, they saw that the, the victims were each cataloged with these campaign codes in the malware. And each campaign code was a reference to the sci-fi novel Dune. So they came up with the name Sandworm for this group because you know, sandworms are these immense monsters in the Dune books. But when they released their initial report on Sandworm, it was actually Trend Micro that looked further and found that there was more than just espionage going on here. There seemed to be reconnaissance for attacks on industrial control systems. That report was followed by another from US CERT that found that in fact, Sandworm had successfully breached American utilities and planted its black energy malware. So this was no kind of traditional espionage. It was in fact, preparation for disruptive attacks on industrial control systems. And that was essentially a kind of foreshadowing of what we would see the next year beginning to unfold in Ukraine and then eventually spreading to the rest of the world. And and so in terms of the state of things in the, the global community of industrial control systems and people's perceptions about their vulnerability, where did we stand at that time? So we had seen some intrusions on the electric grids publicly reported, some attributed to China, some to Russia. We had never seen a confirmed actual blackout caused by hackers. The best example we had, in fact, of hackers messing with physical systems was Stuxnet, which had occurred years earlier and had not really been replicated. It was a very, very targeted U.S. and Israeli engineered attack on the centrifuges in Iranian you know, facilities. It was a kind of targeted military strike on physical equipment. And we wouldn't see that again until Sandworm in in late 2015 turned out the lights in Ukraine for a quarter million civilians, which was really the first time that kind of cyber physical attack had been applied to that scale, that kind of indiscriminate scale that doesn't differentiate between 
military and civilian targets. Let's walk through together the steps leading up to the actual blackout, to the turning out of the lights. Um, What were they up to and to what degree uh, were outsiders aware of their actions? So in in early 2014, Ukraine had a pro-Western revolution and Russia had responded almost immediately by invading the country physically in Crimea, in the south and in Donbass, this eastern region. But that physical invasion was accompanied by wave after wave of digital attacks as well. And they started in the fall of 2015, uh, these data destructive attacks that used both black energy, that Trojan, and then also a wiper tool called KillDisk. And they hit media, they hit transportation. Ultimately, they planted this black energy Trojan in electric utilities as well. Uh, In fact, four of them across the country. Uh, at first, these were mysterious attacks, but as they kind of grew in number, it became clear that Russia was carrying out some sort of cyber war in Ukraine. The full aggressive intentions of, of Sandworm only really came to light in December of 2015, just before Christmas, when they carried out this kind of relentless campaign of blackouts across the country that were kind of just brutal in their mechanics. Not only did they steal the credentials necessary to access the industrial control systems of these utilities, open the circuit breakers, using in some cases a phantom mouse attack that hijacked the actual mouse movements of the engineers. You know, they rewrote the serial to ethernet converters firmware so that the operators were locked out, couldn't turn the power back on. They messed with the backup power supplies in the control rooms of these facilities so that they themselves were thrown into a blackout in the midst of this blackout. They used KillDisk to wipe all the computers And they even bombarded the facilities with fake phone calls. It was just a kind of layer after layer of chaos, seemingly trying to impress some audience or experiment with new techniques even. And when I read about that, I was immediately interested in myself delving into this ongoing cyber war. And then, of course, it happened again a year later, uh, the culmination of another wave of attacks that again hits you know, every part of the Ukrainian economy and government, but culminated in, a, in another blackout, this time in the capital of Kiev. There was a particularly uh, chilling uh, section of the book where you describe these engineers at the power plant um, watching their terminals, the mouse movements happening from some remote location, uh, throwing switches uh, throughout the plants with some of the control systems uh, and feeling powerless to do anything about it. It's almost like a Hollywood idea of what hacking looks like. The hackers took over their Citrix IT remote desktop tool and logged into their computers. This is only in some of the facilities, but used that tool to perform this kind of phantom mouse attack so that the engineers watched. And I have a video of of this that one of them recorded with his iPhone. As no one is touching the mouse or the computer, the cursor moves across the screen, opening circuit breakers each one of which turns off the power you know, to a large swath of the country. It's kind of an industrial control system engineer's nightmare. Uh, to what degree have people concluded that these attacks were sort of demonstrations of, of showing what the, the Russians' capabilities were? Well, that was the conclusion that I began to hear as I talked to Ukrainians and to you know, analysts around the world about who were observing what was unfolding in Ukraine that this seemed to be, among other things, because I think it was in part almost like terrorism designed to send a message to the Ukrainian populace to show them, you know, your government cannot keep you safe, to make Ukraine look like a failed state, 
But I think that there was this third motive in the, those series of escalating attacks, which was to see what Russia could do to, to develop their capabilities. They basically already paid the price for their invasion of Ukraine. They had been sanctioned for their physical invasion. So everything else was kind of a freebie. They could do whatever they liked in Ukraine and attack Ukraine with whatever cyber means they wanted to try out because there was no further price to be paid. And every one of these attacks, no matter how successful it was, there was nothing to be lost and they could gain a, a little bit more terror instilled in the Ukrainian populace and confirmation of a capability. You know, you could see this happening in 2015. The blackouts uh, were manually performed. They you know, used it in some cases, that phantom mouse attack I described. But then in late 2016, it was an automated attack. And you know, ESET and Dragos would analyze this piece of malware that was used in that second attack called Indestroyer or Crash Override that was the first ever blackout malware, essentially, that was designed to send commands directly to circuit breakers. And in, in this case, it, it kind of sent rapid-fire circuit breaker opening commands to a transmission station owned by Ukrainergo, the national utility of Ukraine, and caused a blackout for a significant fraction of the capital. But the significance of that, of course, was that this was the first piece of malware since Stuxnet that was designed to automatically interact with physical equipment like that. That kind of um, experimentation was sort of mysterious at the time because it, it was a sophisticated looking piece of malware and, and you know, really unique and custom made. And yet it only caused a one hour blackout. And there was this question of why had the Russians done this just for a one hour blackout in part of the capital? And Dragos, and particularly Joe Slowick, an analyst there, has only in recent months come up with an answer for that, which was that actually there was an, this mysterious part of that attack that attacked protective relays, these safety systems that can monitor for overload of current on electrical grid equipment. It turns out that it looks like these hackers had actually intended to first turn off the power with this automated malware and then attack the protective relays, putting them to sleep so that when the operators turn the power back on, they might in that action destroy their own physical equipment in this truly insidious plan. And that, that could have led to you know, actual burned lines, harmed staff could have destroyed transformers and the results could easily have been a blackout that lasted weeks rather than hours. And the only reason that that didn't work was because of a kind of configuration error in their protective relay exploit. So that that part of it fails. You know, when you look at these things, it's like Russia has no tactical reason to want to turn off the power. It's not like that was part of their military plan to turn off the power in Kiev and then invade or something. This was a kind of influence operation, it seems like, like a terrorist attack designed to scare people to show Ukraine its capabilities and to show, I think, for these hackers to show their superiors what they were capable of, probably to show the West as well and you know, signal in some sense that we have this deterrent capability. If you launch cyber attacks at us or attack our grid or prevent us from doing what we want to do, then we have this weapon in our arsenal. Yeah, you mentioned that Russia was already under sanctions uh, for their invasion of Crimea. I mean, what was the global response to this? How, how did the rest of the world react? That's part of the story of the book is that the world did not really react to this series of attacks that just got more and more aggressive and indiscriminate. The West, including the US, really just watched these attacks unfold in Ukraine and treated it as somebody else's problem. You know, this is Russia's sphere of influence. We've sanctioned them for their illegal war. 
we don't need to say anything. It, you know, it seemed to be the attitude of, about these unprecedented attacks. I mean, you would think that the first time in history that hackers actually turn off the power to civilians, that the U.S. government would want to say something about that. Like, hey, uh, that's a red line that maybe you shouldn't cross. Or, you know, this is a reckless act of indiscriminate aggression against civilians and will not be tolerated no matter who the victim is. You know, Ukraine is not a part of NATO. But nonetheless, it seemed to me that this was the sort of red line that we want to establish in cyber war. And yet nobody said anything, not after the first blackout and nor after the second. It seemed to me that this was what allowed these hackers, Sandworm, to escalate with impunity until they released what became the worst cyber attack in history. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. Yeah, you know, it's interesting. You mentioned Dragos, and uh, one of the characters throughout your book is Rob Lee, um, who I've spoken to many times on the Cyberwire. Um, and, and sort of a running theme through the book uh, that uh, Rob shares his frustration with uh, our response, or, or I suppose you could say our lack of it. Yeah, Rob was one of the kind of Cassandras, not quite a whistleblower, but some sort of like, one of the researchers who spotted what was going on early and tried to sound the alarm. I think that John Hulquist at FireEye is another. And then the Ukrainians, of course, were, were trying to tell the world, too, that something dangerous was happening here. And I think you know they did even say to me that what happened in Ukraine seemed to be bound to spill out to the rest of the world, that what Russia was doing to them in Ukraine, Russia would, would sooner or later do to the West as well. And there was a kind of precedent for that because Russia had hacked the Ukrainian election, tried to spoof the results, actually, and just barely kind of um, failed. The Ukrainian Central Election Commission caught the fake results just in time before they were posted on their website. And then Russia meddled in the U.S. presidential election. At this point, we were seeing Russia mess with Ukraine's power grid. And the kind of logical conclusion was that maybe they would try that against targets further abroad as well, just as they had kind of tested out election hacking in Ukraine. I, I initially wrote a story for Wired that kind of made that prediction. It came true far more quickly than I expected in the form of NotPetya. We published this story, the cover story in Wired, that essentially said that what happened to Ukraine should not be ignored because it would eventually spill out to the rest of the world. 
And the day that it hit newsstands was the day that NotPetya hit a Russian attack on Ukraine that within hours spilled out to the rest of the world and became the worst, most expensive, devastating cyber attack ever. Well, let's dig into NotPetya. You know, you mentioned earlier that this notion that um, people were saying that these attacks would spill out into the rest of the world. And that is what happened with NotPetya. NotPetya was, of course, this this worm that looked like ransomware, but wasn't. It was just a destructive wiper that seemed to be targeted at Ukraine, but was entirely reckless in its scope. It spread initially via this Ukrainian accounting software. That accounting software, Medoc, was used by really anybody who filed taxes or did business or had partnerships in Ukraine. As I'm sure everybody who listens to the show knows, it first hit Ukraine. It really carpet bombed the networks there, but it immediately spread beyond Ukraine and hit a long list of multinational companies like Merck and Maersk and FedEx and Mondelez. And you know these are massive multinationals, and in each case, it did hundreds of millions of dollars in damage, kinds of numbers that we'd never seen anywhere before, totaling to $10 billion in total damages, according to a White House assessment, which is more than we'd seen, you know, even in WannaCry the month before. And again, the, the global reaction in terms of uh, additional sanctions or, or punishment or any sorts of action against Russia were what? Well, initially nothing. And that was so vexing to not just me, but I had been speaking to people like John Hulquist and Rob Lee, who had been warning about this group and the Ukrainians. Now I felt like I was part of this weird club of Cassandras who were saying, watch out, this group is dangerous and its attacks are escalating and will hit us sooner or later. But then they did hit us in the West. I mean, Merck eventually lost $870 million to Nantetia, and they're in New Jersey. This is an American company. And yet, in the wake of NotPetya, it took eight months for anyone to call out Russia as the aggressor. That includes like all of these companies who are simply totally unwilling to name Russia as the source of this attack that had devastated their balance sheets. I thought I was going crazy. I followed this group for a year at that point. I could understand in this kind of cruel logic why the West would ignore these attacks on Ukraine. You can make this kind of realist argument that that's Ukraine's problem, it's not our problem. But once NotPetya spilled out and it hit all of these Western targets as well, that of course was our problem, and yet nobody was saying anything. The US government didn't say anything until February of 2018, eight months later. None of the companies said anything. I just couldn't understand this, this silence around what was starting to become clear to be the biggest cyber attack in history. So what are your conclusions there? I mean, why the... Was the silence coordinated? I mean, obviously, uh, uh, President Trump has uh, a peculiar affection for Russian leaders. Was it at all related to that? I never really got to the bottom of why it took so long to attribute NotPetya. Because after all, ESET, the Slovakian cybersecurity firm, they found forensic connections between NotPetya and the black energy attacks, which they call Telebots, but you know everybody else calls Sandworm, within days of NotPetya. They could kind of show this sort of interlinked um, series of components used in those early attacks that evolved into NotPetya. It was very clear that this was Russia to me from the beginning. And of course, it's like, who else is going to be targeting Ukraine? I mean, it, it's it's confusing because NotPetya spilled out to Russia too. And that, I think, speaks to the fact that the damage done to the West 
was probably collateral damage, like the damage done to Russia. But it, it was totally avoidable collateral damage. It, could, it would have been easy for NotPetya's creators to filter its infections using the actual tax ID numbers that were available in the MEDOC software that they hijacked. They could have made sure that the attack only hit Ukraine, and they didn't. But yeah, I don't, I don't know why the U.S. government was so slow to do this. I think uh, maybe the attribution took a long time. It, it could be also a factor that nobody wanted to go into the Oval Office and talk to President Trump, of all people, about Russian hacking, that that was just a kind of uncomfortable subject and one that you were not rewarded for bringing up in a, an, an intelligence briefing. I ultimately couldn't kind of get the palace intrigue in the White House to understand why it took so long. But eventually, I did hear the story from you know Tom Bossert of the decision to finally call out Russia eight months later. You know, I, I don't want to take credit away from the White House for eventually acting and calling out Russia, imposing sanctions. In fact, coordinating this this attribution that all five Five Eyes carried out together, Canada, uh, Australia, the UK, and New Zealand, all together named Petya as a Russian act. It took a long time to do it. The real mistake in my eyes is that we waited until it hit us to make that call. When everyone knew that this highly dangerous group of hackers was escalating its, its attacks on Ukraine and doing things that should not have been acceptable in the first place. We waited for it to, to bite us before we took action. Was there any sort of disconnect in your mind between the sophistication of the attacks against the power plants in Ukraine and then, as you sort of described, the, the unintended consequences of NotPetya, that perhaps there was some sloppiness there that it, it got out of hand for them. I think that these, this series of attacks has always been kind of complicated in its, in its sophistication. There have been parts of it seem to have taken incredible resources, uh, like the step-by-step -step mechanics of that 2015 blackout in Destroyer or Crash Override, the tool used in 2016. When people initially found it, they told me it was pretty sophisticated. It certainly was unprecedented. In more recent analyses, like Dragos has done, they've argued that it actually was kind of sloppy in its coding, that parts of it were, in fact, broken. It did what it needed to do. They didn't actually succeed in, for instance, that protective relay attack that might have caused far more damage. You know, in general, I would say this about hackers linked to the GRU military intelligence agency in Russia, which is ultimately who Sandworm would be linked with. They're a 10 out of 10 in their aggression and brazenness, maybe like a five to seven out of 10 in their sophistication. They're not exactly on the, the NSA's level, for instance, in their, the actual perfection of their tools, and they don't seem to care about stealth at all. And they certainly don't seem to care about restraints, limiting the blast radius of their attacks. So where do things stand now? I mean, to what degree did, did this serve as a, a global wake-up call to, to the seriousness of, of these sorts of attacks? Have people stood up? Where, where do we stand? I think that the story of NotPetya has not truly been recognized still by governments or companies around the world. The victims of the attack have largely still not spoken about their experiences. I had to you know, really bang my head against the wall to get enough sources at Maersk, the world's largest shipping firm, to anonymously, bravely tell me their personal experiences so that I could recreate what happened to Maersk. And I don't think that recreation has actually even happened in the vast majority of NotPetya's global victims. NotPetya was named as 
uh, Russian act and you know was punished with sanctions. But even before that announcement, Russia, in fact, the GRU, had also launched an attack on the Pyeongchang Olympic Games in, in February of 2018. And that has still never been called out by the global community. That was another disruptive attack. The Pyeongchang Olympic organizers had to frantically rebuild their entire IT network the night before the Olympics began. The, the, this attack hit at the moment of the start of the opening ceremony and could have caused, you know, if not for this kind of like heroic 12-hour marathon, massive chaos at this global event attended by heads of state and foreign dignitaries. And yet, like, we have still never heard a kind of global condemnation of Russia's attack on the Olympics. That's in part, of course, because that Olympic destroyer malware used was this very deceptive piece of code with layers of false flags in it. But it's also just a kind of strange failure of global diplomacy to recognize the seriousness of these cyber attacks, to call out Russia, to say, cut it out. I, I think it has been a weak response. NotPetya was, you know, really pegged the meter. It was the worst thing we've ever seen. And that kind of only barely after eight months got a response. And yet there have been other attacks that never have. The full scope of the cyber war that Russia has been carrying out in Ukraine, I think still hasn't been fully recognized and reprimanded by the West. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you know, swinging back again to to Rob Lee in the book, I, I believe it, he expresses frustrations that the U.S. is not leading the way, that the U.S. is not setting standards for what's acceptable when it comes to these sorts of things around the world. Yeah, I did interviews with both Tom Bossert and Michael Daniel, who was a very senior cybersecurity official in the Obama administration. And neither of them really was willing to say that we should, well, first of all, neither of them actually did in their time in office actually call out Russia for its blackout attacks in Ukraine, for instance. And when I asked them why not, they say, because that was essentially within the rules. We in the US, they say, want to maintain the ability to do this ourselves in wartime. You know, if we are in what they believe is a just war, we want to maintain this capability ourselves, use our, our cyber command to turn off the lights if we want. I think that's wrong. I think Rob Lee would argue that's wrong. It happens that in Ukraine, it was to begin with an unjust, illegal war, and that should have disallowed the use of these kinds of tools to begin with. But I would say that we should go further and say that, you know, as Brad Smith and Microsoft would say, we need a kind of Geneva Convention for the internet, and uh, we should just never perform these kind of indiscriminate attacks on the critical infrastructure of civilians. That doesn't seem like an unreasonable demand of ourselves and the world. Our thanks to Andy Greenberg for joining us. The book is Sandworm, a new era of cyber war and the hunt for the Kremlin's most dangerous hackers. For everyone here at the CyberWire, I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. Don't struggle to align your organization's cybersecurity with business risk. Get the only solution that goes beyond reacting to threats with vulnerability and risk monitoring. You need the next evolution of MDR, and only Critical Start delivers it. Critical Start doesn't just monitor and respond to threats. 
They put you in control by detecting suspicious activities, quickly responding to contained threats, and identifying your most critical assets and protecting them against vulnerabilities and exposures. With continuous visibility, expert guidance, and measurable risk reduction, Critical Start has redefined what it means to manage cyber risk. Demonstrate provable security maturity to your leadership while positioning your program to achieve the greatest risk reduction per dollar spent. Stop fearing risk and start managing it with Critical Start. Visit criticalstart.com and request a demo today. That's criticalstart.com. 